Good morning, everyone. chapter 2, verse 1.
All right. Uh, good morning, everyone. And if you haven't turned there already, please go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, as you can see on the board, we'll continue our study of Ephesians, and uh, particularly we'll continue our study of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, and noting the B part, which is basically the third description of the Gentile Christians who are the recipients of this letter before their justification. So if you're a Gentile Christian, this is a description of you, in other words. And this corresponds to the description we have of, of, of Gentile Christians before their justification, as we saw in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And the purpose in that passage was to accentuate the grace of God uh, and raising us up and seating us with His Son, Jesus Christ, despite the fact that we were dead in our sins and transgressions. And now we'll see in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, that despite the fact that we were uh, not in a covenant relationship with God, we're far away from God in that sense, uh, God still uh, made us members with uh, Jew, uh, Jewish Christians, made us uh, members of the new humanity, which will reign with Jesus Christ during his millennial reign and on into eternity. So a great passage. In, in other words, this passage, verses 11 through 22, like verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, are accentuating the grace of God, which is grace is God's unmerited blessings toward us based upon the merits of the object of our faith, Jesus Christ and the merits of our union identification with him. So uh, this is, uh, again, to prompt us to humility. And, uh, when, and the Gentile Christians are not better than the Jewish Christians. They're both treated on the basis of grace. And also it should cause us to worship God and to give thanks to him. And that's the whole purpose of what Paul is giving us here. And it was also to promote unity among the uh, between the Jewish and Gentile Christian communities in the first century A.D. So uh, that's going to be our subject here today, this third description of Gentile Christians before justification. This constitutes our 105th hour in uh, Ephesians. And uh, so also another, just a few announcements. Um, there's going to be the class schedule. Uh, I mentioned this on this past week, but uh, this, this will be the last. We'll take a, we're not going to have classes next week. In fact, we won't resume classes until uh, November 28th. So this is our last class before the Thanksgiving break. And uh, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to go down and see some friends down in Orange Beach. Maybe. We'll see. I don't know. Um, but uh, actually, um, actually, I can't do that. So <laughs> I wish I was, I was able to do that. But anyways, so uh, we're going to um, we're going we're gonna to go and uh, I'm going to take some time off. And uh, they, 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 I'm the pastor of DVC down here. And, uh, and so I got some things I'm going to do with them and then I have Thanksgiving with them. So, uh, and then the Christmas break is coming up and I'll go back to see my family in Massachusetts. So, um, anyway, so that'll be, uh, that'll be coming up. So I'll announce what the class schedule is in December and January. Cause in the middle of December, I, I usually take a break for about a month. So we won't resume classes sometime in January, but I'll, I'll, I'll put that on the website and announce that when I get back from the Thanksgiving break. So anyway, so this should be, uh, should be at Ephesians chapter two, verse one. And, uh, let's take a moment of silent prayer. This is our custom. We take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves, determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the father, son, and the Holy spirit. But according to first John one nine, if we confess our sins to the father, he, God, the father is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, he purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. We maintain that fellowship by obeying the Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing and distracting to you, do what 1 Peter 5.7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us, another day to study your word. We thank you for the grace, the faith, the salvation, your work on our behalf and eternity past, the personal work of your Son of the Cross, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives from regeneration to resurrection. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work to all of us, those who are in the audience and those who are, and myself as the communicator. Um, I just, uh, your word says when we're weak, we're strong. Your power is manifest in our human weaknesses. You taught through your servant Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 10. And so I pray you would empower me uh, to uh, to deliver your full counsel today to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. I also pray that you would work mightily and powerfully through your people and the audience, help them to be sensitive as well to the Spirit's guidance and direction, and by the Spirit, help them to learn, understand, concentrate, and carefully consider the passages and principles we'll be noting here today in order to make personal application. So I know I pray that, Father, that each person would be spoken to as individuals and all of us as a corporate unit. I also pray if there's any non-Christians in the audience, and I thank you for them. I pray that the Spirit help them understand the gospel so that they can make a decision to either accept or reject your Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior. And we know that you desire all people to be saved from your wrath and to have an experiential knowledge of the truth, who is Jesus. And I also pray for the technology. I thank you for it. I pray, Father, that the technology will function properly and there will be no problems with it, the recordings, the video, and the audio, and upload of these things to our various websites, podcasting media platforms that you've given to us. Thank you for them. And I pray you would use them mightily and uh, thank you, and I pray you continue to protect them as well and as you've done in the past. So, Father, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you uh, haven't turned there already, please go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'm going to read from the Net Bible chapter 2, and then I'm going to read it from my translation. And then we're going to uh, delve into the third description of the, uh, of the Gentile Christians prior to their justification in Ephesians 2.12. So it says in Ephesians 2.1, again, I'm reading from the Net Bible today. It says, And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path, according to the rule of the kingdom of the year, the rule of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in, our, in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you were saved. And he raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you were saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, and the flesh who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision that is performed in the body by human hands, that you at that time, without the Messiah, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus, you, who used to be far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, the one who made both groups into one, and who destroyed the middle wall of petition, the hostility, when he nullified in his flesh the law of commandments and decrees. He did this to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and to reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by which the hostility has been killed. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near so that through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then 
you were no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let me give you my translation of these same verses, chapter 2. Now, correspondingly, even though each one of you is a corporate unit with spiritually dead ones because of your transgressions, in other words, because of your sins, each and every one of you formerly lived by means of these in agreement with the standard of the unregenerate people of this age, which is the production of the cosmic world system, in agreement with the standard of the sovereign ruler, namely, the sovereign governmental authority ruling over the evil spirits residing in the Earth's atmosphere. Specifically, the spirit who is presently working in the lives of those members of the human race who are characterized by disobedience, among whom each and every one of us also, formerly for our own selfish benefit, conducted our lives by means of those lusts which are produced by our flesh, specifically by indulging those inclinations which are produced by our flesh, in other words, those impulses which are the product of our flesh. Consequently, each and every one of us caused ourselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of our natural condition from physical birth, just as the rest correspondingly caused themselves to be children who are objects of wrath because of their natural condition from physical birth. But because God is rich with regards to mercy, because of the exercise of his great love with which he loved each and every one of us, even though each and every one of us in the Christian community as a corporate unit were spiritually dead ones because of our transgressions, he caused each and every one of us to be made alive together with the one and only Christ. Each of us as a corporate unit was, was, uh, was, as a corporate unit was to be raised with him. And correspondingly, he caused each and every one of us as a corporate unit to be seated in the heavenlies because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. He did this so that he could display for his own glory during the ages which are certain to come, the incomparable wealth, which is the product of his grace, because of kindness, for the benefit of us, because of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus. Each and every one of you in the Gentile Christian community are saved because of grace by means of faith. In other words, this salvation never originated from any one of you as a source. It originated as the gift from God. It did not, it does not, or emphatically does not originate from meritorious actions as a source so that a person cannot for their own benefit enter into the state of boasting. For each one of us are his creative workmanship. Every one of us, in the, for every one of us in the Christian community has been created by means of our faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus in order to produce actions which are divine good. These God prepared in advance so that each of us would conduct our lives by means of them. Verse 11, therefore, now he's giving an inference from those 10 verses here. Each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly all of you, without exception, who belong to the Gentile race with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision by those who receive the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands, each of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. We noted that in our previous class. Each of you used to be alienated for the nation of Israel's citizenship. We did that as well in the last class. We examined that description as well. Specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. And we'll be looking at that description today in detail. 
Each of you used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing. Consequently, each one of you used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. However, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, every one of you, as except, without exception, who formerly were far away, have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to this same Christ. For he himself personifies our peace, namely, by causing both groups to be one. Specifically, by destroying the wall which served as the barrier, that is, that which caused hostility between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, by nullifying, by means of his human nature, the law composed of the commandments consisting of a written code of laws, in order that he might cause the two to be created into one new humanity by means of faith in himself at justification and union identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Thus, he caused peace to be established between the two races and the two races with God. In other words, in order that he would reconcile both groups into one body to God through his cross. Consequently, he put to death the hostility between the two races and the two races with God by means of faith in himself and justification and union and identification with himself through the baptism of the Spirit at justification. Correspondingly, he, as a result, came proclaiming peace for the benefit of each and every one of you, namely those who are far off, likewise peace to those who are near. Consequently, through the personal intermediate agency of himself, all of us, without exception, namely both groups, are experiencing access by means of the omnipotence of the one spirit to the presence of the Father. Indeed, therefore, all of you, without exception, are no longer foreigners to the covenants of promise, that is, foreign citizens, but rather, each and every one of you, as a corporate unit, are fellow citizens with the saints, that is, members of God's household, because each one of you have been built upon the foundation, which is the communication of the gospel, to, be, to each one of you by the apostles as well as prophets. Simultaneously, he himself, namely Christ Jesus, is the cornerstone on the basis of its being continually fitted inextricably together by means of justification by faith and union and identification with him, the whole building is growing into a holy temple by appropriating by faith union and identification with the Lord. In other words, by appropriating by faith your union and identification with him, all of you without exception are being built together into God's dwelling place by means of the omnipotence of the Spirit. So, uh, we see here that the third description of the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians, which Paul presents here in Ephesians 2.12, defines specifically the second description. So, if you look at the Net Bible again, if you look at verse, uh, verse 12, it says, you were at that time without the Messiah. What time? Prior to their justification. Alienated from the citizenship of Israel. And then he says, and strangers to the covenants of promise. That description, strangers to the covenants of promise, is defining specifically what Paul means by the second description that Gentile Christians prior to their conversion, justification, were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. So, uh, so if, let's uh, take a look at this uh, verse as it's translated in various translations because I'm going to, my translation, if you look at my translation on the board of verse 12, it's a lot different than what you see in the Net Bible. So my translation of verse 12 each and every one of you used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated for the nation of Israel's citizenship. And then, specifically, each of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, 
which is the product of the covenants. If you notice, the Net Bible simply says, strangers to the covenants of promise. Uh, I'll give you some other modern translations, and I'm going to explain my translation, and it goes as ESV. They have, let's see, they have um, strangers to the covenants of promise, okay? So that's pretty much like, I think all of them are doing it. Uh, Lexham Bible, uh, they say, uh, strangers to the covenants of promise, okay? Same thing, pretty much. Uh, let's see, the New Living Translation, they say, and you did not know the covenant promises of God had made to them. And let's give you another one. We'll do the, the NIV, today's NIV. They have um, foreigners to the covenants of promise. Okay, so if you notice, their translation, they're all around the same thing, and I'm, I'm significantly different. So I'm going to explain today why that is. I'm going to go into the, the, each of the, this, the of this expression, ex, expression, do this, the syntax, the grammar and everything. And uh, we'll, we'll find, we'll nail this down. In fact, most, a lot of the expositors pretty much say what I, a lot of, most of them say what I say, but they don't reflect it in the translation. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. So again, the third description of the unregenerate state of these Gentile Christians, which Paul presents here in Ephesians 2.12, defines specifically the second description, description. It describes them as being characterized as strangers, as we'll see, to the most important promise which was the product of all the covenants God established with Israel. Now it explains, and that's why I use specifically at the beginning of the third description of my translation, it explains, this uh, third description, why these Gentile Christians were alienated from the citizenship of Israel. Thus this third description indicates that these Gentile Christians, prior to their justification, were characterized as being alienated from the citizenship of Israel because... They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They were strangers to the unconditional covenants that God established with the nation of Israel, which all promised a Savior to deliver them from eternal condemnation, condemnation from the law, enslavement to sin and Satan, personal sins, and spiritual and physical death. Like, for instance, uh, we see that in the Abrahamic covenant, in you, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Well, that's a reference to the Messiah. Paul tells us that in Galatians chapter 3, where he says, notice it's not seeds, but seed. And your seed, your descendant, which descendant is he talking about to Abraham? A future descendant of his would be Christ, who was in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of course. Okay? So it's there. And also, uh, we, have, uh, we also have uh, the, the Davidic covenant makes mention of uh, the Messiah, a king ruling over Israel in the line of David. Okay? So very, very important we understand this. So these covenants are all at some, in various places are referencing the Messiah. So therefore, if we compare the command to remember in Ephesians 2.11 with this third description of these Gentile Christians prior to their conversion to Christianity in Ephesians 2.12, Paul wants these Gentile Christians, and this is what we should be doing as Gentile Christians in the 21st century because we're just like them. Paul wants these Gentile Christians to continue to make it the habit of remembering that they used to be characterized as being strangers to the most important promise, which is the product of the covenants. So, uh, this is something we should do in prayer. We talk about remembering, you should be doing this in prayer, and also remembering when you interact with uh, other people in the body of Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile Christians, uh, and remember, keep this in mind. It promotes humility, okay? And it also should prompt us to thank God in prayer for what He did for us Gentiles, when we didn't even have a covenant relationship with, with, uh, with God or we, we were, far, were far away from the nation of Israel. And so, uh, and salvation is of the Jews. So, uh, this is something we should do in prayer. It should cause us to praise, worship God, give thanks to God, 
and uh, and also it promotes humility, and also it should promote uh, unity in the body of Christ. Now, the word for covenants there, it's the word diatheke, and this word refers to the five covenants that God established with the citizens of Israel. Now, there were other covenants that God made prior to uh, making the Mosaic law, or, and also, remember, prior to Abraham, uh, God making a covenant with Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Before that, and before the giving of the law, God made a covenant with Noah and the human race after the flood. Remember that? So there you go. And I know that my, my brothers and sisters in Christ that are covenant theologians, they talk about the covenant grace in the Garden of Eden and all that stuff. There's no covenant mentioned in, in the Garden of Eden at any point. So that's, to me, that's, that's something that the text doesn't say. You know, when God says he's establishing a covenant with someone, he mentions the word, uses the word covenant, barith in the Hebrew, and diatheke in the Greek New Testament. And when he made a covenant with Noah, he told Noah this is a covenant. And then also same with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with the Abrahamic and Davidic and Palestinian covenants. David, he, this is a covenant I'm making with you, promises. Okay? But we don't see this in the Garden of Eden. Okay? So the covenant of grace, that's why I'm one of the reasons I'm not a covenant theologian, and there's many other reasons. I'm a dispensationalist. Not that... It, I can't have fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, the covenant theologians, because I, or covenant-based, uh, uh, I do. So it's not, you know, it, we, we agree on more things than we disagree. So keep that in mind. So the, the word for covenants, again, in this passage, refers to the five covenants God established with the citizenship of Israel. Four of these covenants uh, that God established with the nation of Israel, Israel were unconditional. And we're going to talk about what that means. And one was conditional. We'll talk about what that means. Now, the articulate construction of this word, diatheke, covenants, is monadic, okay? Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that these covenants, which God established with the nation of Israel, are unique, or quote-unquote, or one of a kind. Why? Because it is Israel is the only nation which God entered into a covenant relationship with. The only nation. Now, this use of the article, I told you it's monadic, which means it's indicating the noun covenants, diatheke, is one of a kind or unique. How do we know that? Well, the, the word has a genitive adjunct. When the word, an particular word has a genitive adjunct, it's more likely going to talk about a monadic uh, idea. A, 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 it's, it's a unique expression or the reference unique, okay? So the genitive adjunct in this place, is, in this context, is teis epangelias, epangelias, teis epangelias. Now, that word means of promise, teis epangelias, and that uh, is translated of promise by the Net Bible, okay? Thus, because of this type of expression, the whole expression is, strangers to the covenants of promise, is expressing a monadic idea. So, xenoi tone, diathekon, teis epangelias, which is translated by the Net Bible, strangers to the covenants of promise, is expressing an, a monadic notion. In other words, the strangers of the covenant of promise is a unique thing to Israel. Okay, So this word, epangelia, which I translate the most important promise, and the other translations translate simply promise, and I translate it this way because it refers to God entering into a promise with the nation of Israel to provide them a Savior who will deliver them from eternal condemnation condemnation from the law, enslavement to sin and Satan and, his, and personal sins and spiritual and physical death. And this promise appears of a Savior appears in the Mosaic, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenant, even in the law, the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 18. There's going to be a prophet, he says, that comes after Moses sometime down in the future, 
and you're to listen to everything he says, okay? And it's referenced in the Gospels, this, okay? Jesus fulfilled that. He was the prophet, the greatest of the prophets that God was talking about through Moses in the law in Deuteronomy 18. So, the articular construction of this word, epanglia, okay, it has an article before it, it's uh, what we call par excellence. It's, the, it's a type of article which we call par excellence, which is, what does that mean? It's used, the article's used here to point out a substantive that is the extreme of a certain category. So here, it indicates that this promise is the most important of all covenant promises God communicated to Israel, and which promise is that of a Savior. So the article before this word promise is a par excellence article, which is used to point out Epanglia's promise as that of an extreme, extreme of a certain category. So in other words, that means it's the most important promise of all, the, it's all, and all the covenant promises that God made to his people, Israel, and uh, all of them, and to individuals, this is the most important promise, which that, the promise of a savior, okay? So notice I explain my translation, okay? I'm not taking this, I'm talking out of my hat, and you can check me on that, and there's other expositors that understand this as well being the case, okay? So it's talking, this most, it's the most, this particular expression is it's uh, talking about the fact that this is the most important promise, the promise of a savior, okay? So again, go back here so you understand what I'm talking about here. The word epangelia, translated promise in your Bibles, I translate the most important promise. Why? Because of the grammar of the passage. It refers to God entering into a promise with the nation of Israel to provide them a savior who will deliver them from eternal condemnation, condemnation for the law, Enslavement to sin and Satan, personal sin, spiritual and physical death. And this promise appears in the Mosaic, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants. Now, the articular construction of this word, again, is par excellence, which is used to point out a noun or a substantive that is the extreme of a certain category. Here, in, in this context, the article would indicate that this promise is the most important of all the covenant promises God communicated to Israel and which promise is that of a savior? Now, see, he could have done this. He could have said, covenants of promise, says. Notice he doesn't say, because there were many covenant promises. It's plural, right? Why does he just say singular? This is another indication. He's talking about something in the extreme of its category. This, this, the, 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 the promises of all, uh, the, the, the most important promise of all, the promise of, above them all, which is what? Is... A promise of a savior. Otherwise, those other promises are meaningless. So, we have here, great passage, we see that this promise of the savior, it's the most important promise of all the covenant promises God communicated to Israel. It's the most important promise for unregenerate Jews because they are under God's wrath and just like Gentiles. And they can never benefit from the other covenant promises without first appropriating by faith the promise of a savior by exercising faith in Jesus, the Christ. Now, this word epangelia, promise, it functions as a genitive of product. What's that, Pastor Bill? Well, it expresses the idea that this promise of the Messiah to deliver Israel is the product, quote-unquote, of these five covenants, which God established with the nation of Israel. In other words, this promise of a Savior is the product, quote-unquote, of the contents of these covenants. So, in other words, remember what Paul said 
with the law in Galatians chapter 3, talking about the Galatian Christian community. The law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. Okay? Hold your place. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Look at Galatians chapter 3. I'll blow it back to full screen for you. Hold on one sec. Galatians chapter 3. And let's look at... Uh, Look at verse 23. Galatians 3.23. Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, and faith being faith in Jesus... And uh, I know some of the Net Bible says the faithfulness of Christ before he came. Uh, I, I would uh, I'd beg to differ on that. And that's a story for another day. So now before faith, you know, before faith in Jesus, because Jesus hadn't come yet, okay? You know, prior to, in the Old Testament, prior to his, the incarnation, Bethlehem, there was no Messiah yet on the earth, okay? That's what he's talking about here. Now before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners until the coming faith would be revealed before the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, would be revealed as, a, as the God-man. Thus the law had become our guardian until Christ came so that we could be declared righteous by faith. But now that faith has come, Jesus has come, and now we can have faith in Jesus because he's come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew, Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for all of you are, in, are one in Christ Jesus. And what he says in Galatians 3, 26 through 28 is directly related to what he's saying and alluding to in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So notice, so the law itself, it pointed the sinner, the unregenerate sinner, to their need for the Savior, Okay. So that's why the law, in that sense, is pointing to, to the Messiah, okay? That most important promise. All right. So you should be at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. And so if you look at my translation of Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 11. Therefore, each and every one of you, I'll just highlight it here for you. Therefore, each and every one of you as a corporate unit must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formerly each of you who belonged to the Gentile race with respect to the human body specifically those who received the designation uncircumcision, by those who received the designation circumcision with respect to the human body performed by human hands, all of you, without exception, used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. Each one of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, all of you, without exception, used to be strangers to the most important promise, which is the product, or the, uh, uh, the product of the covenants. Each of you used not to possess a confident expectation of blessing, and consequently, all of you without exception used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. So, covenants. I told you that the word covenant uh, is uh, all the uh, covenants, uh, the most important promise of the covenants. You notice the covenants is plural, and we have the unconditional covenants that God made with Israel, uh, four of them, and we have the fifth would be the Mosaic covenant, which is conditional. So, uh, therefore, I promised you that I would explain what a conditional and unconditional covenant is, because this is very, very important. And this is, it has, it has implications for interpretation and also, also in relation to the nation of Israel and the future of the nation of Israel, for those who study the remnant of Israel with me. And, uh, and we saw that 
the, the one of the reasons why the nation Israel, God has not abandoned the nation of Israel. Paul says that in Romans 11, just because they rejected, the majority rejected Jesus at Jesus' first advent, it doesn't mean that God's done with the nation of Israel. He makes that clear in Romans 9, 10, and 11, specifically chapter 11. So, uh, there are some people out there that are supersessionists, replacement theology, they call it, meaning they believe that the church has replaced Israel. That can't happen for the, one reason, is that God made unconditional promises to the nation of Israel, which guarantee her continued existence will always be around. Read the New Covenant promises in, Jer in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, but then keep reading after verse 34. So God has not set aside the nation of Israel because of a rejection of Christ during the, the uh, first advent. Remember, he keeps a, a remnant of believers as he's doing today uh, in the church age. In every dispensation, and every generation of every dispensation, he keeps a remnant of Jews, believing Jews, for himself. And that's what Paul's saying. You know, when he says, I have not, uh, I still have, uh, uh, quoting Elijah, when he talked to Elijah the Lord, uh, that I have, I have set aside for myself 7,000 Jews who have not set their, uh, you know, uh, bowed the knee to Baal. They're not in apostasy. They're faithful. Okay? So, these, the importance of a condition, understanding about covenants and the conditional nature of some of the covenant promises and the unconditional nature are very important. Okay? There's only one conditional covenant. That's the Mosaic covenant. So, what does all that mean? Conditional covenant, unconditional covenant? Well, it goes as follows. Listen carefully. What is, first of all, a covenant? A covenant is a compact or agreement between two parties, binding them mutually to undertakings on each other's behalf. What is a covenant again? It's a compact or agreement between two parties, binding them mutually to undertakings on each other's behalf. Theologically speaking, you, when used the relations between God and human beings, it means it denotes a gracious undertaking entered into by God for the benefit and blessing of mankind. Specifically, to those people who by faith receive the promises and commit themselves to the obligations which this undertaking involves. So the word most often used, and I mentioned it in passing a few moments ago, the word in the Old Testament that's most often used to express the covenant concept is the Hebrew noun barith. Our general characteristic of the Old Testament barith is its unalterable and permanently binding character. There are two categories of covenants. As I said before, there's the conditional one and there's unconditional. And as we pointed out, there's only one conditional covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant. There's four unconditional covenants. Uh, you could say three because uh, I break out the land promises that God made to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, as a covenant. And, and, and But it, even though it really is a part of the Abrahamic covenant. So I break it out into the Abraham, the promised land promises in the Abrahamic covenant. I break it out and call it the, the Palestinian covenant. Probably Palestinian is probably not the best word to use. Um, I could say the land promises, the land covenant. So the fulfillment, the fulfillment of unconditional covenants de dependent upon, entirely upon, the faithfulness of God. So if the fulfillment, okay, I'm choosing my words carefully here, pay attention. The fulfillment of unconditional covenants or unconditional promises and unconditional covenants depended entirely upon the faithfulness of God rather than human beings. Whereas the fulfillment of a conditional covenant depended upon the faithfulness of human beings, and in this context, the nation of Israel. In a conditional covenant, that which was covenanted depended on the recipient of the covenant, 
for its fulfillment, not on the one making the covenant. Certain, so then in other words, if we take it with about the nation of Israel today, just because, and Paul mentions this in Romans 9, 10, 11, just because the Jew, majority of Jews in the first century rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, they, as Savior and they crucified him, okay? Uh, just because they were unfaithful, that doesn't mean that, uh, that, uh, that the promises that God made to the nation of Israel had been abrogated or set aside. They're not. They're unconditional. Why? Because those promises are related to God's faithfulness, not the faithfulness of the Jewish people. So certain obligations or conditions would need to be kept by the recipient of the covenant before the giver of the covenant would be obligated to fulfill what was promised. That's what we have with the conditional covenant. Conditional covenant means certain obligations or conditions which would need to, would needed to be kept by the recipient before the covenant before the giver of the covenant, in our context, God, of course, would be obligated obligated to fulfill what was promised. So you see in the law, in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, Moses' farewell address to the nation of Israel. He said, if you're faithful, I will bless you. If you're not, I will render a curse against you. There he says, there it is. So, and it all depends on their volitional decisions, their behavior. So, and that's the Mosaic covenant. So this type of covenant, the conditional covenant, is what we call, has an if attached to it. The Mosaic covenant made by God with Israel is an example of a conditional covenant. So, Christ came, Paul talks about this in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. In other words, the law condemned Israel, the sins of Israel, because God demands perfection in the law. Nobody could keep the law perfectly, which God requires perfection in its obedience. Israel couldn't do that, okay? And God knew that. And uh, so that's why he made provision for the, the animal sacrifices and for their sanctification and forgiveness of sins. But at the end of the day, they were all the substance and reality of those sacrifices. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus. Okay? So well, we see that Jesus did what we couldn't do, which is to fill the law perfectly, which God required, a holy God requires. He doesn't tolerate sin. So he had his son to fulfill what we couldn't do. So in an unconditional covenant, though, we see that which is covenanted dependent upon for its fulfillment solely on the one making the covenant. That which was promised with an unconditional covenant, that which was promised was sovereignly given to the recipient of the covenant on the authority and integrity of the one making the covenant, entirely apart from the merit or response of the receiver. It was a covenant with no if attached to it whatsoever. Now, we need to clarify something an important aspect of an unconditional covenant this is extremely important. An unconditional covenant, which binds the one making the covenant to a certain course of action, may have blessings attached to it that are conditioned on the response of the recipient. That response is simply faith or trust that God will deliver on his promise. Okay? Faith or trust in God to deliver his, on his promises is the condition. Faith manifests itself in obedience to God. Faith is a non-meritorious system of perception. So the fulfillment of unconditional covenants does not depend on the continued obedience of the recipient, but rather the integrity and faithfulness of God who constituted or instituted, excuse me, the covenant. So the four great unconditional covenants to Israel are number one, the Abrahamic covenant. That deals with the race of Israel. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, 13, 16, 22, 15 through 18. 
And that was uh, reaffirmed and expanded upon when when God uh, used uh, chose jo- uh, Isaac and Jacob, who had his name changed by God to Israel. Then an offshoot of the Abrahamic covenant, I break it out into a separate kind of covenant itself, is because is the promise of land. I call it the Palestinian covenant. You could probably say the land covenant is probably better. And that's in Genesis 13, 15, Numbers 34, 1 through 12, this promise of land to the nation of Israel. So that means, and these are all unconditional. So therefore, we believe in this ministry, and we're dispensationalists, we believe in the national regeneration and restoration of the nation of Israel. Restoration meaning they're going to be restored to the land in, in the millennium. Now the Israel, they're back in the land now, but they're going to be dispersed again when during the tribulation period when Antichrist sets himself up in the rebuilt Jewish temple and declares himself God, the abomination of desolation, and the, and the false prophet makes the image of the Antichrist. And Jesus said in Matthew 24 that uh, when you see that, he tells the Jews that that generation head for the hills, leave. And only a small remnant of Jews will be in the city fighting Antichrist till the second coming of Christ. We know that from Zechariah. So we have the promise of land guarantees this promise of land. It's unconditional promise. It guarantees that the, the land is going to Israel. It doesn't belong to Hamas and it doesn't belong to these other people. Now we're going to have wars on rumors of war, right? All the way up to the time of the second advent of Christ. Israel is still under discipline. Listen to me. Nobody wants to talk about this. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the, oh, the word of God. The majority of Jews have rejected Jesus. They're in the land. The majority have rejected him. Maybe a tiny remnant is, small, tiny remnant is believed in Jesus and the Jewish over in Israel. Okay. So they're under discipline and they, their last great period of discipline is yet to come. And it can't happen until the church is removed at the rapture, the resurrection of the church. Paul says that in second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one to 12. So this is the day, then that'll be the day of the Lord beginning eschatological day of the Lord coming up. So they're under discipline now, okay? That doesn't mean that gives us the right to mistreat them or treat them unjustly. I'm just telling you, that's why they're going to have, they're going to have problems. They're going to continue to have problems. It ain't going away until the Prince of Peace gives them peace and they won't trust him until the second advent when there's no choice and they have no other alternatives. Antichrist has betrayed him, betrayed them. And now they're going to finally realize and, 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 and choose the right Savior. Okay? That ain't coming yet. That can't happen until we're out of the way. So Jacob's trouble is yet to come after the rapture. 70th week of Daniel. Okay? So they're, they're, they're under discipline right now for the rejection of the Messiah. Then the Christian community, the pastors need, a, and those are so-called uh, theologians, or, uh, the no eschatology should be reminding people of that to understand and to interpret what's going on con- historically right now. Okay? Because that's why they're having problems, okay? And once you remove the United States out of the way, which if we are the rapture generation, the United States is decimated. And there goes, that's why I believe if it's we are the rapture generation or the next one in America is the biggest, you know, biggest uh, advocate for Israel, benefactor of Israel in the world today, uh, then when we're gone, you can see why uh, Antichrist heading up the United States of Europe, the final stage of the Roman Empire, they'll make a deal with him, Okay. They'd be ready for that, okay? So there's another covenant, the Davidic covenant. That deals with the aristocracy of Israel. That's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17. You see it in the Psalms, which is Psalm 87. Then there's lastly the new covenant. Uh, you see that in Ezekiel 36, but the big passage is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. That deals with the future restoration and regeneration of the nation of Israel during the, uh, the second advent millennial reign. The Mosaic covenant is the only conditional covenant 
that Israel received from God. Exodus 19, 4 through 6. We did that book in the past. Deuteronomy 4, verses 4 through 8. You compare that with Exodus 2, 24 and 25. Deuteronomy 4, verses 36 through 38, 29, 31, and 1 Chronicles 16, 15 through 19. Now, some fa- final facts about the covenants to Israel. They're literal. Two, they're eternal, except the Mosaic. Three, they're unconditional, except Mosaic. Four, they're made with the, co- the covenant people of Israel, not with Gentiles, which leads to this. If they're not given, and Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 11, we benefit from the new covenant and all these covenants, unconditional covenants that God made with Israel, we benefit with, uh, from them because of, of our faith in Jesus Christ and our, sub, and our right at that moment, the Holy Spirit placed us in union with His Son, Jesus Christ, and identified us with Him in His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session, the right hand of the Father. Not only that, but He also, as we see in Ephesians 2, 11-22, and Romans 11, He united us, Gentile Christians, with Jewish Christians. We're the wild olive branch in Romans chapter 11. And the olive tree is Israel. Okay? So that's why we are benefiting from the, the new covenant and all these covenants will benefit from, okay? The new covenant, two stipulations, forgiveness of sins, gift of the Spirit. We have that because of our, uh, our faith in Jesus at justification and our union identification with Him through the baptism of the Spirit. And that baptism of the Spirit united us with Jew- Jewish Christians, okay? So that's very important that we understand that, that, that we didn't get the covenants. Gentile nations weren't giving covenants, these covenants. God made these covenants with... Uh, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, and Jeremiah, and the nation of Israel, not any Gentile nation, okay? So, tremendous uh, passage here. So, if you look at the, uh, again, the passage in Ephesians chapter 2, my translation, uh, verses 11 through uh, 13, it goes as follows. Therefore, each and every one of you, as a corporate unit, must continue to make it your habit of remembering that formally, all of you, without exception, who belong to the Gentile race, with respect to the human body, specifically those who receive the designation uncircumcision, by those who receive the designation circumcision, with respect to the human body, performed by human hands. All of you, without exception, used to be characterized as without a relationship with Christ. All of you used to be alienated from the nation of Israel's citizenship. Specifically, each one of you used to be strangers to the most important promise, the promise of the Messiah, which is the product of the covenants. Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, uh, Palestinian, Davidic, and New Covenants, Mosaic Covenant. All of you, without exception, used to not possess a confident expectation of blessing, and consequently, each and every one of you, without exception, used to be without a relationship with God in the sphere of the cosmic world system. Verse 13, however, much like Ephesians 2, 1-4, however, because of your faith in and union and identification with Christ Jesus, each and every one of you is a corporate unit who formerly were far away, the Gentiles, meaning far away not in a covenant relationship with God as Israel was, have now been brought near by means of the blood belonging to the same Christ. We're to remember this. This is Paul telling us Gentile Christians to remember this. So, when you go in your prayers, remember these things and thank God for that, this beautiful thing that God did for us through His grace, through faith in His Son, and the baptism of the Spirit. Give thanks to Him. Praise Him that He did this for us. Give Him thanks. Also, it should promote humility in our lives. And we are not better than any other Christian. We're on this equal footing. And we're certainly not better than Jewish, uh, better than Jewish Christians. We're, on this, we're equal citizens with them. We're, same with them. We're, in, we're not second-rate citizens, too. 
And Paul wanted them to know that, the recipients of this letter that were Gentile Christians. We're not second-rate citizens, okay? We're part of the new humanity, and which I said before, is going to reign over the works of God's hands. And we'll close with this. Remember, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, God said to Adam and Eve that they'd rule over the works of his hands. Well, Hebrews chapter 2 says that's not the case. Uh, Satan is the god of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Uh, 1 John 5, 19. The whole world is under his power. Uh, Revelation 12 says he deceives the entire world. In fact, Jesus was offered the kingdoms of this world by Satan in, in Luke 4, 5, and 6, and Christ emphatically rejected them. Now, that wouldn't be a legitimate temptation if he didn't have that kind of authority over the nations now, would he? It's got to be, a, it, he must have that kind of authority. So why, how did he get there? The fall. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve the fall. Uh, would, through that fall, Satan usurped the authority of Adam and Eve. Now, starting with his son, Jesus Christ, God sent his son in the world to be crucified, died, buried, raised, and seated with him at his right hand as the first step in restoring mankind over the rulership of his hands. And so that was the first step. And now, ever since the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD, with Jewish Christians believing in Jesus and receiving the baptism of the Spirit and Gentile believers, and Acts chapter 10, beginning with Cornelius and his family, the baptism of the Spirit they received at their justification by faith in Jesus Christ. And so every Jew and Gentile believer in the church age, which ends, it's imminent, its ending is imminent, and it'll end with the rapture, the resurrection of the church. So between this period of the day of Pentecost in 33 AD to the rapture, which could end at any time, God is calling out a new humanity, created a new humanity of both Jewish and Gentile believers, slave and free male, male and female, all the one in Christ Jesus. Okay, because of our faith in Christ Jesus at justification and our union identification with him through the baptism of the Spirit at our justification. Thank God for that. I know I'm going to do that today as I do it like every day. And, uh, and, uh, and when I lay my head on the pillow tonight, I'll be thanking God for that as well. And there's a lot of things we can be thankful to God for. And Paul's given us some reasons why we should thank and worship God for his grace, his unmerited blessings that he gives to us. We don't earn or deserve any of these things. And put, that'll help us put things in perspective. Uh, you know, God has proven he loves us by delivering us from his wrath through faith in his son. He proved his love for us at the cross when he, when he crucified his son for us and had his son suffer his wrath in our place so that we wouldn't suffer it forever in the lake of fire. And sending his son to the world to become a human being to live the life of perfect obedience under law that we couldn't fulfill. And then raising us up and seating us with his son at his right hand when we were dead in our sins and transgressions as we saw in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And so we should thank God for all these things. Our biggest problems have been resolved at a justification and the baptism of the Spirit. Now we need to go and live our lives in a manner consistent with that and show our gratitude to God by growing to spiritual maturity, keeping short accounts with God. When we sin, we confess the sin, 1 John 1, 9. And then we maintain our fellowship by obeying what the Spirit's teaching us in the Scriptures which He's inspired. And obeying the command to love one another as He has loved us when we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ and loving your fellow human being as you come in contact. That's how you can honor God and show your thanks to Him by growing to spiritual maturity to become like Jesus Christ. Okay, And then you're honoring Him. And all those things that He did for us, you're showing your gratitude. It's one thing to say it with your lips but also your life says it. Your life will say it. And your priorities, how you live your life, okay? Well, we'll pick this up. Remember, we have our Thanksgiving break. 
Have a great Thanksgiving. Don't eat too much turkey. I plan to eat too much turkey. <laughs> but so have a good time with your families. Have a safe time. And we'll, Lord willing, the rapture doesn't happen or, you know, the Lord takes me out. Okay. Uh, we'll see each other on Tuesday, November 28th at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. So thank you. And we'll pick it up then. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray this class would be a great blessing to you, people bringing glory to you and your Son, Jesus Christ. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.